0: The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, second chapter, starting in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man." This is the word of our God. You may have noticed in the weekly email updates from our congregation, every month or two, you get a uh, a report and prayer request from the campus minister at the University of California at Irvine, UCI guy by the name of uh, Derek Rishmawi. He's the guy who's gonna be preaching to us this morning. Derek is a native of Orange County. He lives in Newport Beach. He's a scholar. He's working on a doctoral dissertation now. He's an author. He's a, he has been a regular columnist in Christianity Today. He's a co-author of at least one book that I know of. I don't know how many other books may be out there. All this is true. But what he really wants you to know about is his son, Constantine David Zaglul Hamel Rishmawi, born July 23rd, uh, 2021, just a few months ago. And I would be astonished if he does not show up as a sermon illustration in a few minutes. <laughs> so uh, Derek, we are looking forward to hearing you open the word of God to us. Thank you.
1: Um, thank you for that generous introduction and welcome. And uh, and thank you all for having me here. It's really great to be here. Um, as was mentioned just right now, uh, my name is Derek. I am the campus minister at UCI. And, and really, that's what I love to do is um, work with college students on campus, sharing the gospel, reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve the church and connecting them to the work of the local church. Uh, churches like this, uh, New Life, and y'all partner with us and pray for us and uh, support us, and so it's a real pleasure to be able to be here and share with you out of God's Word to to bring uh, encouragement, hopefully, uh, to a church that has encouraged uh, me and my wife and our students over the years, and so um, it's just a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, We just heard the scriptures, I'm going to check my mic really quick, it doesn't get stuck. They, they teach you these little tricks, you, you you thread the mic thing back under your jacket so it doesn't show, but then it gets caught on your shoulder, so just as a little inside note there. Um, before we get into God's word, though, um, we're going to ask for God's help, and so I'd love for if you'd bow your heads with me and pray, and then we'll get into things, Okay. Holy Father, you are good and you are wise and you are righteous and you're kind. We thank you for these kindnesses and we thank you especially for the kindness of speaking to us by your word this morning. We pray to you right now that now the preaching of your word would honor your truth and reveal you for who you are so that we might know you and love you and be transformed by you pray all these things in the name of your son jesus christ amen so uh beginnings matter uh i don't know if you if you all remember the first time you ever saw the star wars scroll coming down the screen uh galaxy far far away etc cetera, etc cetera. like that that just that makes an impact or if, High school, literature, everybody's had to read a few books at some point, and you've, you've read the opening lines, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? Uh, beginnings matter, they set the tone, and if we want to get philosophical for a bit, uh, we might say the same thing's true of our own lives, right? You, you know what your first words are as a child, they're, they're usually something like mama or dada, I'm rooting for that for my boy Constantine uh who's not here by the way he he I was up with him at like 3:30 this morning and he was just not going to make it to church today but in any case we, these these words, the first words that we utter are often um related to to relationships that for better or for worse set the tone for the rest of our lives right mom dad like these these first words often speak to the deepest realities that we encounter uh, and I bring this up today because in this text, we actually have Jesus' earliest, first recorded words in Scripture, so to speak. This is the only episode and the only words uh, out of his, recorded out of his childhood before he emerges in a public ministry about 18 years later. We go from you know his presentation in the temple when he's like eight days old, and then this one incident when he's 12, and then he's 30 and he's preaching. Right? This is the only incident. Luke did not record it in order to satisfy some kind of biographical curiosity, like, oh, what was Jesus like as a kid? Right. This isn't enough to actually tell us much about him as a kid, his personality, his details. It is recorded because it is revelatory. It tells us something important about who he is and what he came to do. And as we sort of continue on in this Christmas season, we're only about a week and a half out, two weeks. You know, if you do the church calendar thing, we're smack dab in the 12 days of Christmas. As we think about the, the mysteries that Christmas celebrates, the mystery of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, it's fitting that we look at this, chi- this incident from his childhood in the temple and try and glean some truths. And, and I want to say that there's, there's three things that this incident in the, in the temple... Um, Shines a light on for us. The first thing it shines a light on for us is the provocation of Jesus. The second is the identity of Jesus. And third, there is the mission of Jesus. And my, my conviction is, is if we take a look at these things this morning, is if we slow down and meditate and ponder these things, we will catch a vision of Jesus that can alter and reshape the way we approach him, especially in the coming year. So with that said, I want to get going and I want to first talk about the provocation of Jesus that we encounter in the text. So, so if you look at it, um, Jesus provokes and confuses those around him. And, and just to, to set the stage for that, let's just talk about the story a bit. What is going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Jesus and his parents were going on their yearly pilgrimage, right? There, there's, there was a pilgrimage. Um, uh, commanded in the Jewish law and the Torah, every year, uh, males, were, males were supposed to go celebrate the feast of the Passover in the holy city of Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary, being particularly pious, they, you know, they took the whole family, and so they would go down to the feast in Jerusalem and celebrate the great liberation when God set Israel free from their slavery to the Egyptians thousands of years ago. And so they went, and they celebrated the feast for a few days, and then they went to go return home to Nazareth, which is uh, their town, hometown up in the north in the region of Galilee. And, and back in those days, in that time in the culture, it, 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 was, it was normal for you know communities to travel together. It wasn't just like one family per minivan, that kind of thing. It was like, no, everybody's traveling in groups. It's families, it's whole towns, it's clans traveling together. So it wouldn't be weird for uh, Joseph and Mary to not know where... Jesus was for a day or two. He's like, oh, he's sleeping over at cousin, you know, Jehoiada's, uh, you know, tent or something like that. And 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 we'll catch up with him on Tuesday. That that was pretty normal. It wasn't the helicopter parent culture in that sense. Um, so they're on their way home, and uh, and th- you end up with this kind of reverse Home Alone situation where after a day or two on the road, they realize, oh, oh dang, we left Jesus back in Jerusalem, and now we got to go get him. And so they go back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. And where do they find Jesus? And this is where it gets interesting. They find him in the temple. What is he doing? He's sitting with the teachers of the law, listening and asking questions, much to the amazement of everyone there. Now, imagine, if you will, if if American life had a center to it that kind of blended the most powerful uh, voices on, like, the Supreme Court, and then, you know, uh, professors from the Ivy League, and then, like, religious authority, like, the Vatican, in terms of legal and intellectual and religious learning and power. And all of that is, like, in one court, in one classroom. This is the equivalent of the teachers of the law that Jesus is sitting there as a 12 year old boy conversing with and asking questions as they teach. And the questions that he's asking are not just, like, oh, what does this mean? They're the kinds of questions that that in the the culture of the day, to ask a a good question shows that you had mastered the teaching and then could then take it further and deepen and actually reveal a layer that perhaps the teacher himself had not thought of. And this is what Jesus at 12 is doing to the most elite teachers of the day in Israel. He's, 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 He's demonstrating an understanding of reality that cuts through the ordinary and the everyday. He was not... Who they expected and this is true of his ministry as an adult jesus is not who people expected he taught uniquely he taught with someone as authority the gospel said and his words provoked his words surprised uh, Blaise pascal mathematician philosopher and his Ponce, says jesus said great things so simply that he seems not to have thought about them <laughs> and yet so clearly it is obvious what he thought about them such clarity with such simplicity is wonderful. And he's, he's speaking of the way that Jesus' words kind of cut through and provoke and grab a hold of us, right? Think of some of his sayings. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And the one who would hold on to his life will lose it. And the one who loses his life for his sake will hold on to it, will save it. Or again, think of it, not just of his teachings, but his encounters, like, what does he say when the woman who is caught in adultery is dragged before him and they ask the teacher of the law, ask him, hey, what should we do with him? Should we stone her according to the teaching of the law? And he says, sure, go ahead. Just uh, uh, first one of you without sin, cast that first stone. So to to to, to, to this threat of, of extreme cancellation, uh, he offers a word of disarming grace, right? But then again. When his disciples come to him and ask him about marriage, uh, whether it's lawful to get a divorce for any reason, like some of the teachers of the law were were teaching at the time, it was an open debate. He just says, "Um, no, actually, uh, Genesis, God said one man, one woman, forever. That's how he made Adam and Eve. That was his intention from the beginning. And he gives this really hard line answer. Marriage is a devout commitment. When it comes to political dichotomies, they tried to trap him regularly. They tried to get him into criticizing Rome and, and, and asked him the question whether or not he should pay taxes, whether they should pay taxes. And what do he do? He gives this brilliant but cryptic answer. Uh, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God's to God's. And they have no answer to that. Right? It's, it's not that he was just taking some, some easy center of the road, um, never take sides, never have an opinion kind of approach. But what he was, he was giving answers that didn't fit in little, little pre described boxes. He couldn't be hemmed in. He was not what they expected. He says things, and he still says, he says things that are beautiful and uplifting and liberating while also saying things that are hard to receive and sharp and maybe a little pointed. I love what he says about forgiveness, right? I love what he says about the mercy of God, but why is he so strict about sex and money, right? Jesus is someone whose brilliance and insight and severity and grace will not allow us to cage him in. So he causes intellectual provocation. But it's not just intellectual provocation that he brings. It's actually... actually more than that, it's a, it's emotional and, and relational. Look at Mary's words to him, "Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." Think about that for a few moments. Right? Mary and Joseph are really and truly disturbed. They they have not seen their son for a few days. there were not. They, they didn't know where he was. I mean, imagine your your twelve year old kid, thirteen year old kid, is like out for a few days, and you have no idea where he is, and he shows up like, "Oh, I'm at so just at school." What? How mad would you be? How worried? How at the edge of your? I'm I, I. Being being a dad for a few days, for just even a few months, right now. Um, I have never been more at the edge of myself, at the tiniest little whimper, the tiniest little thing that's. Oh my gosh, he smiled. What does that mean? Like, in imagining him being gone and not knowing where he is so so Jesus is gone and and they worry about him and it feels like Jesus doesn't care right didn't you know I'd be at my father's house we'll get back to that in a minute here's the thing Jesus will do this throughout his ministry he will often leave his disciples confused and a bit bewildered as to why he is doing what he does Right? There's a time, the famous time where they're out on a boat and there's a storm and, um, and it's threatening to capsize the whole thing and Jesus is downstairs taking a nap. And they, they wake him up, Jesus, do you not care if we live or die? And to be honest, um, many of you know this feeling, don't you? Right? You're following Jesus, you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, and suddenly there you are, you look up and you have cancer and you don't have a job, and you are facing a failed marriage, and you have no idea what to do with your child right now, no idea what to do with your aging parent, no idea, and you just look up at Jesus and say, why have you treated me so? Where are you? Jesus may, uh, he, he will, cause you confusion and distress at some point in your walk with him, moments where you don't know where he is, times when you don't understand what he is up to, when he gives you answers that do not feel like answers at all. So what do we do with this provocation? This is where we need to start to understand who it is who's doing the provoking, the identity of Jesus. And this is, and we get that in, in, in Jesus' words to Mary. What does he say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, at first blush, this seems like a non-starter, right? Mary's like, your father and I are here to take you to your father's house in Nazareth, where we will talk to you. Like, like you can imagine it, right there. But Jesus responds, "No, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? Now, where is he? He's in the temple." Now in the scriptures, God is infinite and eternal and he's present in all times and all places. But in the Old Testament, he promises Israel, because of their special relationship with him, he would make a special dwelling place where he, he would be specially present. He would manifest himself there. And this would be in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And that was a place where people would go and worship and know that is where God dwelt. That is where King God's palace is. That's where his house is. And the temple is God's house. And this is where Jesus said he must be in the house of his true father. This is massive. This is the boy Jesus at 12 already making astonishing claims about who he is and knows himself to be. Jesus is the son of God who just earlier in Luke's account, chapter 1, we know was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary... And whom the angel Gabriel said, he will be called holy, the son of God. And so Joseph might have been his adoptive father, but the deep truth about this man is that this boy is somehow God's son and truly divine and God himself. And this is where we confront two of the wildest mysteries of the Christian faith. The heart of Christianity and the heart of Christmas season is the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. See, Christianity teaches that while there has only ever been one God living and true, one God who created all things, this one God exists eternally as three persons, one in being, but equal in power and glory, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the claim of Christmas is that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of questions and answers summarizing the Christian faith, it's our Presbyterian uh, Foundation documents, puts it this way. Question 21 says, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And this is the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. I can't unpack all that right now. We can talk about that later if you want. But what we have here in this action of Jesus is a sign. It's a revelation. Jesus physically positioning himself in the earthly house of his heavenly father is a sign of his eternal relationship to the father as the son. We're invited to recognize Jesus' unique Identity here it's like a, it's like a secret epiphany a revelation of who he is of his glory of his identity. And this begins to answer for the provocation of Jesus right? This is no ordinary child. He is no ordinary religious leader. He's, he's not some, I don't know, Deepak Chopra offering up spiritual fortune cookies or somebody who's easily marketable out there offering some way. He's no ordinary teacher giving generic good advice He's not even a brilliant philosopher. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher, uh, Danish philosopher, uh, wrote a book, Philosophical Fragments, where he, one, of his main, one of his main tropes is contrasting like Socrates and Jesus. Socrates came as a teacher of knowledge who was in essentially like trying to get you to recognize a truth you should be able to recognize inherently on your own. It's almost like he's trying to get you to remember what you'd forgotten, right? G- The contrast here, though, is that Jesus comes not as a teacher of wisdom, he comes as wisdom itself. He he is what is being revealed. He is the God. He is the knowledge. He is what you couldn't come up with on your own. So of course he will confuse. Of course he will astonish. He is the infinite, eternal God walking around in our flesh. Why would we ever think he would conform to our expectations of what he should be like? And there's, there's two deep reasons. There's two, two deeper reasons I think we need to reflect on for why there's a difference between our expectations of him and who he actually is. The first is simply that we are finite. right? Jesus is God in the flesh. Yes, he, he became finite in a sense, but you and I are creatures. We have limits. He is transcendent. He is infinite. He is the creator. He does not. You and I have boundaries to our imagination and knowledge. Boundaries to our power. Boundaries to our natural capacities to just even imagine things. We are barely scratching the surface of, of, of scientific knowledge when it comes to physical realities. And God is a God who hung up the stars in the heavens like their twinkle lights. How much more should we expect there's a gap between our understanding of spiritual reality and His? The second reason is even more problematic is that the Bible says it's not just that we're finite, it's that we're sinners, we're alienated from God, right? We sin, we do wrong, and in our hearts and our minds, there's this basic orientation that's warped and set against God. It it mistrusts God fundamentally. Um, th- there's a. You ever seen a, a marriage where there's two folks who just can't seem to like catch each other? Uh, there's a marriage. There's a the marriage um, researcher, John Gottman. He's got this book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. I highly recommend it. Not a Christian book, it's secular, but it, it's really insightful. But he talks about these breaking points in a marriage where you can tell that at different points, uh, each each person is trying to like offer like an olive branch, like little gestures, and. There comes a point in marriages where people are so hostile to each other, they can't, even, they can't even recognize the olive branches for what they are. They view them so suspiciously that they can't hear the truth. They can't hear the love. They can't hear the, 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 the kindness in the other person's voice. And they think it's a setup. And this is what our hearts do with God because of our sin. Because of our hostile hearts, we often cannot understand what God is saying and what God is doing. And we assume that if Jesus isn't doing what we think he ought to be doing, then he's being cruel or mean. We're constantly tempted to think, what would I be doing if I were Jesus? What moral opinions should God have if I'm going to think he's good? Essentially, we become idolaters. We fashion God into an image of our own design. But Jesus, the real Jesus, the infinite Jesus, the, 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 the divine Jesus resists this treatment. He will not be domesticated by our opinions, by, the, by, by academic consensus, by, by any of our attempts to fit him into a pre-approved version of what a, what a Savior can be, what a teacher can be, what a Messiah can be. He will not conform either to our Our intellectual expectations or even our existential expectations about what he should be doing with our jobs our health and our marriages to to put to put another point on it and uh, land this Mary was thinking about Jesus solely as her human son forgetting that he was far more than that and we do this all the time and this is what what his words expose So that's his identity. But the thing is, it's not just about his identity. His identity and his mission are caught up with each other. And and, and so let's just think a little bit more about his words. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Because these continue to speak to the provocation. There are three three things worth noting here. The first in that phrase is the word must. It's just a little Greek word, de, de. Uh, And scholars point out that day is often used in the Gospels to signal divine necessity, right? Jesus must be there because the scriptures must be fulfilled. He must be there because it's his father's will, his father's commands. These are determinative. Most commonly though, the phrase is used when Jesus is speaking about going to Jerusalem as the lead up to the cross. I must be on my way. First point. Second point. Once again, let's remember where he is. Again, he must be in his father's house, the temple. Now, the temple was not only God's house where the father dwells, but it's also the place in ancient Israel where mediation between God and humanity happens, right? In the Old Testament, Israel's life was centered on on a few things. One was the great festivals, and two, the daily system of sacrifices. Uh, that were set up by God so that he could dwell with them. It was like a, it was like a relationship maintenance system. God instituted the system of sacrifices because Israel was a sinful nation like any other. And so what he did was he set up this system of repair, right? That happened through the work of the priests who would offer up bloody sacrifices that covered over for sin and paid for it and made atonement. Temple, sacrifice, and the forgiveness of sins all were caught up together. And this happened especially during what time? Remember the, great, the, the time this was. When was this? This was just after the feast of the Passover. The, the Passover is, again, the great feast of salvation. When Israel looked back to their liberation from Egypt, on the night that God saved them, he sent a destroying angel through Egypt. And he told Israel for every household to take a male lamb without blemish, sacrifice it, eat it, and smear the blood on the doorway of the house. The lamb was supposed to be a substitute for the son, the firstborn son of the, of the household. And this son represented the life of the whole family within himself. And every house that didn't have it, the firstborn of the household would die. But those that did have the blood on the doorposts would be passed over. And in this event... God broke Pharaoh and the Egyptians' will to enslave the, the Israelites, and so he set them free. And so year after year, the Passover feast was kept, with its sacrifices pointing to the great salvation, where Israel was both forgiven of her sins and set free from bondage to Egypt. Where am I going with all this? Well, When you pull all these threads together, what you come to see is that Jesus knew what he came to do. The business the Father set him to do in his house was the work of salvation and liberation. One day, Jesus knew he would go by his Father's will to the cross as the priest would in the temple, offering up sacrifices, not the blood of lambs or goats, but his own. One day, he would be the one who comes as the lamb without blemish, offered up as a Passover sacrifice. He would be the firstborn, in a sense, whose blood would go up on the doorway Not just of a single household, but over the whole cosmos, to set humanity free from sin, to liberate them, to save them, to forgive them. He says as much 20 chapters later in Luke 22 at the Last Supper with the disciples. As they kept the Passover feast together, he says to them, What? This is my body broken for you, he utters over the bread. This cup is the covenant in my blood. This is where this is all going. Jesus, the God-man, came and knew that he must be in his father's house. He must be about his business, which one day meant he must be the lamb that was offered up for the salvation of all. And this, this is actually how you know you can trust him in the middle of the provocations. Right? Because some of you might have just heard me earlier say, look, he's God, of course he's beyond you, so just shut up <laughs> and quit questioning. And that's kind of true. But, but the other half of it is this. Look at the kind of God he is. He is a humble and saving God. Look at, look, look at verse 50, actually. In verse 50, Jesus, it says, he submitted to his parents and was obedient to them and goes home with them. This is part of the amazing wonder of the incarnation. Jesus is the God, the creator God, who submitted to becoming a creature and then as a creature submitted to his own creatures, Mary and Joseph. He obeyed those that he made. This is astonishing humility from God. This is a sign of what Paul says in Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four: When the fullness of time had come, God sent sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came as one of us, submitted himself to the same conditions and laws and rules as a part of the creation. And as a part of this, he submitted to his own earthly parents as a sign of all this so that he would be perfect, to be able to himself up, to be able to offer himself up as that perfect lamb without blemish. And so that while we see that Jesus is initially seeming to be disrespectful and disregarding his parents, we see that. It was almost like he had his eye on the ball the whole time. Not about disrespecting his parents, but, but thinking about the work the father had for him to do in order to save them, to save us, to save us all. He's not just being a disobedient child, but rather an obe- truly obedient child to his true father in heaven in order to invite us to join him in the father's home. And that's the promise When you look to Jesus and you acknowledge him, not just as a teacher, but as the son of God who came and lived and died and rose again for you, you are reconciled. You are set free from the bondage to sin and you are given the forgiveness of sins and are invited into the Father's house. So what do we do with this? The question here, what do we do with this Jesus? I'll just say one thing. Ponder him in your heart. Right? Ponder the things that perplex you about him in your heart. This is what Mary does. This is what it says. She was confused and perplexed. She obviously told Luke about this many years later when he was recording this account. But she humbly allowed herself to be taught by her son, she, she gathered these things up. She reflected on them for a great many years until much later she came to understand who her son was and what he came to do. Some of you may be here without a clear idea of what you think about Jesus and his words. You may, be approaching, you may have been approaching Jesus as if he was just another Socrates, just another teacher, a wise one, maybe one with some good advice, but, but not, not as the Lord, not as the Son of God who came to save you from your sins. Maybe as we enter the new year, this is a time for you to ponder these things, to consider his claims. Maybe even trust him for yourself for the first time. And if that's you right now, I know uh, myself, the pastors at the church, Jeff Lewis, the elders, would love to talk to you about that afterwards. So go ahead and find somebody and talk to them about what that would look like after the service. Some of you, though, maybe most of you, have trusted in Jesus already, though. And the problem that you have is that you know him, but you are perplexed about what he's doing in your life. It may be for you to ponder in mind that he has a bigger picture and a grander goal and a greater purpose in this moment than you or I are prepared to grasp. There's a classic hymn by John Newton. I think it's going to go up on the screen. It's this quote. I'm going to read it. Um, It says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So Newton's saying uh, he he wants to meet God, he wants God to show him his glory, he wants to grow as a Christian to restrain his sin and all that, But, but, but then he goes on and something else happens. He says, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I had schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Jesus is at work in, the paradoxical, in paradoxical and often confusing ways. But he is the son who came for us. And so maybe your prayer today, maybe what you're, you're being called to ponder today is, is what it would be like to simply trust the work that you cannot understand on the basis of the one whose heart has been revealed to you in that little boy in the temple who said he must be about his father's business, bringing more sons and daughters to salvation. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, you are great and powerful and good and beyond all, beyond all comprehension beyond all our all our scheming beyond all our plans we ask you lord that today as we ponder your son ponder his work we would be amazed we would be drawn in wonder to consider this mystery and be transformed by it humbled by it and grow to love you more and more because of it
0: Pray all these things in Jesus' name.